you have your Bibles, go this morning with me to the book of Romans chapter 2. Uh, the book of Romans chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we want to look at, uh, can I have some monitors, uh, both sides, check one, two, a little more. Okay, yeah, uh, too much, bring me down here. Uh, Romans chapter 2 verses 2 this morning, Billy Graham shared a story of how a number of years ago he was stopped for driving too fast in a speed zone. And in the courtroom, after being found guilty, he, he pleaded guilty, the judge was not only friendly but embarrassed for me, he said, to be in his court. The fine was $10. If he let me go free, it would have been inconsistent with justice. The penalty had to be paid either by me or someone else. And Billy Graham went on to make this statement. He said, judgment is consistent with love. A God of love must be a God of justice. It is because God loves that, is, that he is just. His justice balances his love and makes both love and justice meaningful. And I like what is spoken of in that text because it describes what I want to preach on this morning. Oftentimes when you go to the courthouse, you would find this common label, so-and-so versus so-and-so, right? And so when you see that on the, on the list, you know that there's a case between this company and this individual or this person and another person. But the fact remains this morning that there will be a day in our lives where it is going to be God's judgment courts that we are going to be standing in. And it might be Gregory versus God and you know who's the winner but the point i make to you this morning is in the world that we live in christians have often emphasized on the attributes of god that favors them they often talk about god is love they often say god is grace they often say god is merciful they often say god is long-suffering and these are all true attributes concerning God but yet however true it may be it isn't characteristic you get it you get what I'm trying to say though it's true yet that is not the whole truth to limit god's character attribute to only those love grace mercy long suffering is to clearly dismiss that he is also a god of justice and in other words what i'm referring to this morning is complementing all of his character. He is a God of love, no doubt. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy, no doubt. 
complementing all of those character, we cannot devoid God of His nature that He is a just God. That is critical because when we talk about justice, just like Billy Graham pointed out to you and I, when he faced that judge, though he was at fault, though the judge was a nice, kind, friendly person, yet that did not mean the judge would exercise no justice on him. I want you to catch what I'm trying to say. Because we begin to carry ourselves in this manner of thinking that just because God is love, merciful, long-suffering, gracious, then somehow, every time I go to God and say, I'm sorry, He's going to forgive me. And this is the gospel being preached today. I want you to listen very carefully to me because if anything is true, justice, love, mercy, grace, and all of God's characteristics work cohesively together. Now, in the book of Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, preach a sermon to you this morning that uh, I've called God of Justice. Now, read this with me very carefully and allow God to speak to you as we read this, beloved. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O men, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patience continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of men who does evil of the Jews first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jews first and also to the Greek. Listen to this statement here. I think this sums up the entirety of this text. For there is no partiality with God. It doesn't matter your title, your position, your skin color, your background. No partiality with God. So let's talk about that this morning because our scripture reveals that God's judgment in verses 2 of our text is based on truth. Do you see that? Okay, in verses 2, the Bible says that the judgment of God is according to truth. 
Verses 6, beloved, who will render to each one according to his deeds? Verses 11, without partiality. So God's judgment is based on truth. His judgment is based on our action. And his judgment is going to be based on uh, without any form of partiality. There's no favorites with God. There's no biasness in his judgment. It is going to be solely based on truth and action. And this is a scary truth because when you take into account what God is saying here, these verses are establishing that judgment is imminent. There is no escaping from the reality that there will be a day we will stand before God. And in the face of God's loving kindness, in the face of God's grace, justice must prevail. In other words, God's love for us doesn't dismiss justice. Now, the reason I'm saying all of that is because we hear people often comment this. God will always forgive. Right? You hear sermons, and we like sermons like that. Oh, no matter what you've done, God sees your heart. And God will always forgive you. Now, we're going to look at some scriptures where God says He will not forgive you. Commentators shy away from these scriptures because it's so direct. It bothered me when I got up this morning, I'm finishing. It bothered me so badly. I asked myself, God, will you do that? Will you actually choose not to forgive? If he's a God of justice, he has the right to do that. Characteristically, he's a God that forgives. But let me point to you a few scriptures here, okay? Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You now, these people were convinced they were forgiven. They were doing all of the things that any prophet, any preacher, any faithful disciple, laying hands on the sick, casting out demons, and demons were leaving them. They were beginning to pray. Yet, when they got to heaven, God says, depart. It's scary. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that means after you know what's right and what's wrong, right? right? But you choose to still sin. Look at what the Bible, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, are we truly then forgiven? Hebrews 6, 4-6 It is impossible 
Look at the words here. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, that means ones who were believers, called themselves Christians, saved, right with God, right? And have tasted the heavenly gift, okay? And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, right? Next verse. And have tasted the good word of God, the preaching, you've read it, you know it, the powers of the age to come, verses 6, if they fall away, if they go back into sin, if they go back into ungodly, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Go back to verses 4. It is impossible. Isn't that scary? That means God in His justice has the prerogative to say, I will not forgive you. And the reason I'm presenting that, Mark 3, 29, I don't think you have that scripture, but he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness. Right? So what happens in our culture today is Christians take God for granted. They assume that I can just do what I want to do, act how I want to act, then come to God and say, I'm sorry, and God's just going to forgive it. But the Bible tells us, and, I, and I'm going to clarify with you, the, this, doesn't, this doesn't supersede the fact that the love of God can never be separate from you and I. This doesn't supersede the fact that when the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if you are faithful and you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. So I'm convinced that God will forgive any form of sin. I'm convinced that God will forgive when a Christian, when a believer turns back to God and seeks for forgiveness with all sincerity of heart, with all genuineness of heart. I believe that God will forgive in material. But I think He's dealing with a spirit here. He's dealing with a spirit that we begin to treat Him so lackadaisically, so lightly, that we have no reverence that one day He is going to judge me for all I've done. And it's a scary truth because the Bible says in Hebrews 10.31, beloved, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is almost, it almost seems like today we have believed a lie that I can sin and I can always expect God to forgive me. But let's face the facts, beloved. If He is a God of justice, if He truly is a God of justice, then we have to ask ourselves if there indeed is forgiveness. That means when I get forgiven of my sin, it is because of God's grace. Amen. It's the grace of God. It is God's goodness to me. But God can also choose to say, I will not strive with you any longer. That's what he says in Genesis 6, when men continually rebel against God. And the sad part is this, many Christians walk around without knowing that God has left them. So let's talk then, secondly, about how the goodness of God draws us to repentance. 
Because in this text that we read, beloved, the Bible does tell us that it is His goodness, beloved, that draws us to repentance. Now we know that there's a familiar text in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, 7 through 10. I want you to just look at that passage with me as we begin to uh, uh, consider this thought. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Turn away from his fierce anger so that he may not perish. Then God, the Bible says, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. So now, one of the key fundamentals about God's character, as much as justice prevails, the truth be told is the God we serve is a God of compassion and mercy. So what we find here is that when these men and these women came with sincerity to God, they were not playing games. They were not just coming and saying, oh, you know, yeah, we sinned against God, so sorry, la God, forgive me. They did not do this lightly. The Bible begins to tell us they began to fast. You read the book of Jonah. They put on sackcloth in the form of saying, we are truly sorry for what we have committed to you. We are truly repentant for what we've done to you. God, we know that no doubt we have hurt your heart. And because of what we've done, I feel so remorse about what I've done to you. And that virtue of action caused God to turn away from judgment. So what I'm addressing is not that God won't forgive. But what I'm addressing is the spirit that's dwelled in us as men that turns to God and just treat Him like He's the sugar daddy in heaven that when you just turn around and say, I'm sorry, He's just going to forgive you. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, you know we, we grew up uh, uh, hearing a lot of sorries at home. My dad used to say a lot of sorries. But, but with all due respect, he, when he was not saved at that time, he would go right back and do the same thing again. I'm so sorry. And he had tears in his eyes. But it was just mere appearance on the outer. But when he got saved, he realized what remorse is. And he came to the place, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be hurting you like this anymore. And something changed. But the point is, beloved, Saying sorry just for the sake of it is not enough. God is a God of justice. He's our judge, beloved. And if I have gone to God and I've sinned before God and I simply say, God, I'm sorry, and I go right back in and do the same thing again, beloved, what is the confidence that I've been forgiven? I don't know. But I don't want to find out when I get to heaven one day and God turns around and says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. It's a fearful thing. Scripture tells us this, that the goodness of God, in verses 4, 
leads you to repentance. So this is why I'm preaching this, because this is so counterintuitive, beloved, to today's response. Today, I hear many of these prosperity preachers come out and they say, oh, you know what? We have to preach the grace of God so people will turn and come to God. Now, I'll address that in a moment. But the conscience of the human heart responds by repentance when they begin to see the goodness of God. This was what the Bible says should happen. That means when I hear God's goodness, when I hear God's grace, when I hear of God's mercy and love, kindness it should draw me to a place where I want to do something for God right the Bible says that his goodness leads me to repentance that means when I'm aware of God's goodness I should be repentant I should be afraid to go back and commit that sin. I should be afraid to go back and speak those words. I should be afraid to go back and say those things. There should be something in me that drives me to repentance. Now the question is, why is that not happening? Why is it that we are promoting God's goodness? We are preaching on God's mercy. We are preaching on God's grace. And this is what most churches intend to build on. They are promoting that over and over and there's nothing wrong with that. But my question here, why is it that lives are becoming from bad to worse? I think the answer is found in Romans 2, 5 to 6. Look at what the Bible says. Even when the goodness of God is displayed, look at this. But in accordance with the hardness of, and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according... So, so the thing that, that you got to catch here is God's goodness cannot penetrate, in, in this text, the hardness of the human heart. The pride, the impenitent heart the hardening of the heart because of sin, the conscience that has become so seared, the conscience that has become so acceptable to the things of the world. You see, the good news of the gospel is Jesus died so we don't have to die. And the point I make to you, beloved, the church is not preaching that anymore. The church is preaching on how you can become rich. And how you can be healthy and have a prosperous life and nothing wrong with it. listen to me i pray on i pray for you every day that that's exactly what will happen in your life every day you can ask people who come for morning prayer i lift you up all in prayer every morning god bless them give them favor in their job open up opportunities for tender god open up opportunities in businesses god give them faith i pray that every day i know every one of you but my point is to you beloved is the good news of the gospel is not we get rich. The good news of the gospel is we got saved. That I don't have to die and go to hell. That Jesus paid that price for me so I can be forgiven of my sin. The church today seems to emphasize so much on the grace without dealing with the heart. 
In the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 4, the Bible tells us, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, look at what the Bible says, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. So now, let's address this here. What Jude is saying is they have turned the grace of God. In other words, the grace of God is supposed to drive us to a place where we want to live for God, where we repent and honour God, where we begin to serve God with all our hearts and we come to a place of living for Him. But in our text, they turn the grace of God for their benefit. And so in other words, now instead of people living righteously, they make the excuse and say, oh God will forgive lah. He's a God of grace. We are imperfect people serving a perfect God. And so God will always forgive me. And we never make the attempt to do the right thing. We just continue dwelling in sin and ungodliness because we continue to believe that God will forgive. God will forgive. God will forgive. God understands. God knows. God knows. God understands. God un but you know the Bible says he who sins is a slave to sin. Yes, there are times that we commit ungodliness. There are times we say things we shouldn't say. We go to God, we repent, but we got to fight not to do it again. The only thing that can break the heart, because the Bible says the heart is impenitent. The heart is hardened. The heart is so, so callous. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, that the word of God is sharper, alive, and more powerful than any two-edged sword. So the only real thing that can break the heart is the preaching of God's word. And when the heart becomes convicted, when the word of God, when the truth of God's word is being promoted and spoken, beloved, that's where the heart begins to receive God's goodness and turn to repentance. I make this statement to you, God's love triumphs over judgment. But you know, we can push God too far to the point where he must exercise justice. My uncle, uh, many years ago, uh, filed for a divorce. And he had a daughter with this lady. He, um, they, they got married. They were unequally yoked. And, and so one was uh, uh, from a different religion. And so he was from... And, and so long story short, they ended up going to court because they couldn't agree. And so they fought, they fought, they fought, they fought. Eventually, they said, let's file for a divorce. But the first thing to do is to fight for the custody of the child. And so when they went to court, in... In the case of my uncle's uh, uh, situation, the judge that was sitting there began to observe my uncle wasn't doing well. Obviously, he was running a business and with all that was going on, he couldn't conduct himself with the finance and all of that. So long story short, the judge knew that financially he was incapable of taking this girl under his wings. Financially, it wasn't possible. But however, when they were... In the courthouse, the judge began to observe the action of his wife. Began to look at the way she behaved, the way she spoke, the things that she said, the way she came to the courthouse at her own ways and fancies and 
at that point of time, the judge made a decision, looking at all of that, she was the type of judge that you would say she was kind, she was courteous, she was polite. However good she seemed, eventually, as usual as possible, that the child goes to the mother, the judge decided at that point of time the right thing to do was to give the child to my uncle. And that goes against most common belief. But what I'm addressing to you here, beloved, is love triumphs over judgment. There's a need to establish that. That God doesn't want to judge you and I. God doesn't want to bring us to that place. But His character of justice, His attribute of justice, forces Him to a place where He has no choice. If you keep doing the wrong thing, He has to exercise judgment. Or else... He's not fair to me. He's not fair to you. I come to church, I serve God, I give my all to God, and that guy sins and commits all kinds of ungodly. How can you let him off the hook and let me pay the price for it? It's not fair. God, where's your justice? So in my opinion, as I'm beginning to put this sermon together, I realize the God who sees it all will have nothing to hide in the face of judgment. There's only fair that those who rebel against him, disobey him, face and pay their dues. Will God forgive? Oh yes, remember the story of the man on the cross? The, the murderer, right? The criminal? At the last minute of death, what did God do? Forgave him of his sin. And what did God do? He said, he turned around and he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's why I set this before you today. I'm not promoting that God will not forgive. Because all through the Bible we find the consistency that God forgives people of their sin. Even in the last minute. But what I'm aiming for you to see is the attitude in which we seek His forgiveness. Because judgment will prevail. If we did it insincerely, judgment will prevail. Immaterial, beloved, justice will prevail. And this is the comfort for every one of us here. That the man who commits wickedness out there, that the man or the woman that commits ungodliness out there and thinks he's getting away with it, the day will come when justice will be served. Where God will see to that. Luke 8, 17, For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. So let's close then with this final thought. Because in my studying of this, I realized that it is God's intention, God's desire that we should all be saved. Okay? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is God's desire for all of us? That we should come to repentance. That is what He's concerned. That is what He wants. He wants us to come to repentance. When Martin Luther was translating the Bible in Germany, 
pieces of the printed scripture fell on the floor, a young girl picked up a, 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 one of those uh, a, a papers and she began to read the phrase of the text. And on that phrase, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave. The rest of the sentence was missing. All she read was, For God so loved the world that he gave. That moment for her was a defining experience as the truth gripped her. You see, she had been told so often growing up that God was a judge and one to be dreaded. She ran home with excitement in her heart, passing the note to tell her mother and talking endlessly of this wonderful discovery. Her mother read it and perplexed, asked, but what did he give? The young girl was lost for a moment with a puzzled expression not knowing the answer, but suddenly a thought came to her and her, first, her face lit up again as she said, I don't know. I don't know what he gave, but if he loved us well enough to give us anything, we need not be afraid of him. I say to you, beloved, yes, there is also a gospel of legalism that's being promoted today. Where everything that we expect from individuals is that you must be perfect you have to be right and everything you do wrong you know you have to pay your penance and you have to walk on glass and you have to do something to get it right uh, that, that is so foreign we're not promoting legalism in this church you have the free will to live for god or not it's up to you but i will tell you this beloved there are many christians who fear god today and don't go to church today because they've seen god as a tyrant Oh, he doesn't like me because I'm not perfect. I don't think God wants to have anything to do with me because I don't have, you know, I've never lived a life that was favorable to him. And they always look at God as one who seems to be a tightwad, like a judge standing with a whip, waiting to beat them the moment they walk into church. That is also false. So the balance to this the balance to the watered-down gospel today and the balance to the legalistic gospel is simply that we have to have a personal relationship with God. That is what it comes to. And in your personal relationship with God, you have to remember He's not just all love, all mercy, all grace, all goodness, all long-suffering. No, he is also a judge. So every action that I commit, the Bible says, every ideal word you speak will be brought into account. He's our judge. But you see, beloved, we've come to a place where we have often forgotten. My desire is not people to run away from church because the gospel, they view it as legalism. But my fear is also that we don't water it down, but we promote that people will have personal relationship with God. Because at the end of the day, let's put it where the rubber meets the road. I won't stand with you in judgment and tell God, no, I know that person, God. You will stand before him one day and you will have to give an account of all that you've committed. 
when he asked them. So this morning the question is, if we were to be judged right now, are our actions truly pleasing to God? I urge you, don't be a man pleaser. Beloved, I respect it. I respect this church. I respect everyone. I'm, I do not promote that you should come and please me as your pastor. Please him. He's God, not me. That's why even in Pastor Mitchell's passing, we don't make this huge shrine and we don't, oh, he's, you know, no, he's only a man. If anything was true that Pastor Mitchell said, he said this always. This is a work of God. Not a work of man. A work of God. And I challenge you this morning to take this thought. I know it's a little different of a sermon. But we've taken God sometimes for granted. We do things that are not right and then we think, oh, I'll just go to God and say I'm sorry. But the Bible does tell us there are times God... In his justice, God has the prerogative to choose. I want you to bow your heads with me.